you know, it's not a business relationship. It is a very personal relationship. These are people that have agreed to tell their stories. They've entrusted the filmmaker to tell them honestly and with integrity and for often a purpose, which is that they want the world to be better for the next generation of trans kids. Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollack. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. All right, welcome everyone. We are rolling. Uh, we are here to talk about our very first documentary. Uh, and it is an incredible documentary called Transhood, which is coming out on November 12th uh, on HBO, on all HBO platforms. Uh, we are recording this before November 12th, which I think will play into the conversation a little bit because we're also recording before November 3rd. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of ifs and uh, speculation and uncertainty around what the world may look like in just a few short days after after this interview. So this, if nothing else, will be a really great time capsule for, uh, you know, for for the national mood and and whatnot. Not that this is a political podcast, but it certainly will play in at least somehow into, into our conversation. But I'd love to welcome, first up, uh, producer, also the EVP of Talent and Development at Buna Murray, a longtime friend and colleague, Sasha Alpert, uh, who has a long, long standing career in reality television, as well as documentaries. Welcome, Sasha. Thank you, thrilled to be here. Oh, thank you for, for joining. And additionally, I would like to welcome the director of Transhood, Sharon Lease. Sharon also has a career that spanned both traditional reality television as well as documentaries. She specializes in time-lapse projects, and this one is no different because this project was shot over the course of five years. And there's just a lot of interesting fodder that I think we're gonna get into about the making of this project, the making of docs in general, how that you know is different, how that's the same from traditional reality television, and then kind of everything in between. Not to mention, the actual topic of the documentary, which is about transgender children and raising transgender youth and not just the kids themselves, but the parents. And there's just a lot to unpack here. And I'm really excited to jump into it with both of you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we're going to start then with the with the light bulb. Uh, Sharon, tell me about the light bulb. Well, um, I live in Kansas City and I love to do documentary storytelling. And in um, this goes back away. So in 2013, my um, husband who knows who's a lawyer and knows that I'm always looking for new stories to tell, uh, comes home one day and tells me that um, he met with some people at the Transgender Institute of Kansas City, and I might be interested to know about them. And of course, I was and, um, you know, I, I was I didn't know that that existed and I was really happy and surprised to find out that we had such resources for transgender adults and youth in the Kansas City area. 
So um, it took a while. I got to meet with them. They invited me to some support groups. Um, and then as an independent filmmaker, you know, looking for funding, I went to PBS, the local PBS who I've done some stuff for, and they were interested in potentially funding the project. In the meantime, I started talking to various people and families, um, two families in particular, Avery's family, Avery and her family, and, and Jay and, her fam and his family. And... Um, I got really excited about telling the story that hadn't been told because this was in 2013 when I started developing this. Um, but then PBS sort of fell off, uh, you know, the project and um, you have to pick and choose which things you can self fund for and for how long you could do that. So, um, so I chose, I was like, I, I just want to tell this story because I love telling um, stories about, coming of age and of children and um, just started really digging in um, and really didn't, didn't start filming to until 2014. Um, Avery was seven and Jay was 12 at the time. Um, and really there was nothing on TV that remotely resembled this. There was transparent, but um, I'm Jazz and I'm Kate were not, were not a thing yet. Um, so, uh, I just thought I had something really, really special. Um, and then after shooting, I put together a little sizzle and sent it to my, um, sent it to my agent, Seth Lawrence. And, um, I mean, the sizzle was probably three minutes in four minutes. He called me and said, and was crying. And I was, I was like, Whoa, he said, this is amazing because we, we're, we're going to sell this. So, um, so that was great. And then, um, and then I was shooting some more and then met up with, um, Buna Murray. I actually had three, um, three production companies that were very interested. I don't know why that's always the case, but you know, you have one project you take out, nobody wants it. And then you have another project that three production companies. So, um, but I can, um, let Sasha take it from there. Yes. So Sharon came in and, you know, we saw the sizzle and John Murray and I both loved it. Um, and Buna Murray sort of specializes in documentaries, our documentary division that are about children and youth. And we'd done something about a school shooting. We'd done Autism, the Musical 1 and 2. We'd done something about kids in prison. So we, it fit right into what we love. And it was a very... Uh, intimate project. I mean, Sharon had incredible access and um, really was trusted by the families and uh, everyone in the families. And so we really were excited by it and wanted to move forward with it. And, you know, we talked a lot about um, the different ways to make this uh, really deep and and to to get the most sort of new coverage that we could get of this and decided that probably the best thing we could do was to do it oh, and and also um boyhood had just come out so we thought well let's do something like that where we're really showing what's going on um over a long period of time both in the community in um in the world around us and in these families all at the same time. Now, when you made that decision to, to follow the path of boyhood and do this over many, many years, and ultimately wound up being five years, did that 
cement your desire to sell this as a as a standalone doc or was there ever the thought that you would sell this as a traditional television series well we did at one point um we actually took it to uh lifetime and lifetime was interested in doing it as a series um but we wanted to do it as a documentary series and you know people weren't embracing the documentary style that we knew we were committed to as much, you know, at that time. Um, but they were interested in it enough um, to kind of have a development deal with us, uh, which allowed us to kind of get the project moving. And we uh, were able to use the, the funds to cast more so that we could add the two more characters. Um, but we finally made the decision after Lifetime didn't go ahead with it, that we wanted, we definitely wanted it to be something that, that spanned several years. We knew we wanted to do something that was at least a year. Um, and projects that I had done in the past, um, High School Confidential, two seasons, I followed girls through high school for four years um, each time. So it wasn't that it wasn't new to me to, to want to do that. And especially with kids, there are so many things that change and evolve um, that that just seemed like a natural for this project. Okay, I, I totally understand creatively why you would make that decision, and it really, really plays out beautifully in, in your film. Um, but there is the sort of the brass tacks logistics of pulling that off, and you've mentioned financing a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> you know, the beauty of traditional television, obviously, is uh, you know for what you give up and maybe in creative control, you get back in financial security. But in I would imagine making a documentary, it's the exact inverse of that. So. You've made this decision to make it as a doc. You're going to see it out at least over the course of a year, if not more. Um, how do you budget that? How do you create a calendar, a schedule? I mean, where do you even where do you even begin? Well, first of all, it's documentaries are are so different than reality in that it's appointment shooting. So you know, sometimes it's you know Sharon and the camera. Sometimes it's someone else and the camera. So it's and sometimes it's a bit, it's a bigger crew, but it's a, it, you know, it was appointment shooting over a number of years. So you're not, it's not full time over many years. And of course we can't thank John Murray and Gil Goldshine enough for, you know, understanding that this had to be shot over many years, but we did it on a budget that would surprise many people. Um, and, you know, the shooting is in documentaries is a lot less expensive than the post because in documentaries, you edit for a really long time to find the story. You don't have a story person. You don't have, you have the editor, the producer, the director. That's who's making the story choices. And, um, you know, it's mostly falling on Sharon and our editor to, to create this structure so so you do have i mean a lot of filmmakers shoot over many years they shoot films for a long time because you can shoot relatively inexpensively it's after that that the budget starts escalating dramatically it's not like you can put five editors on this and do it in five weeks. The story in a verite film, and this is a verite film, has to find itself and, and needs the time that it needs. So um, it's a very small team, very, very small team. Yeah, I mean, I had to invest in, um, in gear, um, in camera equipment and um, 
you know, audio gear. And so there were times when, um, yeah, it was just me with the camera, me with a, an intern or me and, um, and our producer, Sam, um, and she did a lot of the shooting. Um, but then when we got, we, when we got some money, <laughs> we were able to hire um, Ty Jones as the cinematographer, which was which was great. And I really, you know, brought a lot more to the production value. Um, but I was at least able to, um, you know, being in the same city, living in Kansas City, and that's where the subjects were. I did not have to swoop in and, you know, make the appointment shooting like Sasha's talking about, I was able to just go and shoot whenever something was happening so that they could call me and I had a camera uh, and I had a producer who could shoot and we would just go because something was happening that day. And you definitely in reality uh, television don't have that kind of luxury. So that was really, really helped for us to, to get the story beats that, um, you know, became the film. So would that be your first piece of advice for anyone thinking to make, uh, you know, a, a documentary would be live in the city where your subjects live? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I look for, because I have shot several things in Kansas city. Um, I mean, I did a, I sold a CBS show in 2018, an eight episode series and made sure that one of, at least one of the episodes was in Kansas city. So um, I definitely think, you know, looking for uh, stories right where you live, right in your neighborhood um, is very cost effective um, and also helps you to gain trust. I think more quickly with people because, you know, you can tell them I live in your community you know, I, I have to see you. I might run into you at, at the supermarket. You know, I'm, you can trust me. I'm not, I'm not going to do anything that's going to make you want to not be in the same room with me. Also, I think good advice is, you know, prosumer cameras are relatively easy to use. You know, if you're really serious about making a documentary, learn to shoot enough so that you can do some of the shooting, at least until you, you get funding, because, um, you know, that, that's a way to keep costs way, way down. And, and every time you're keeping costs down, you're buying yourself more creative control. So and, and, and the further you can get in the production before you sell it the more you have to show, the more individuality you have, the more creative control you have. And it sounds like also make sure your spouse is working for you as casting. You know, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Everyone around you. It's funny. Uh, one of my daughters actually helped me uh, get one of my most recent jobs. So, you know, got to take it where you can uh, take it where you can get it. Obviously, we all know that access is key. And if it's close to you and you have a way to get connected to the people, uh, the organization an organization quickly um, and reliably, um, is it's great. Well, you've mentioned Kansas City a few times here, and I guess that's another part of it. I mean, much like you know, Buna Murray's most famous show, probably legacy show, The Real World, and the city being a real character within each season. Uh, this this film would have felt very different had it taken place in New York, Los Angeles, or you know any anywhere more coastal. Um, the fact that you picked a location that's I guess a bit against type for what your subject matter was, not just convenient but also I would imagine intentional, right? Well, oh. I mean, she lives there, so it's very intentional. But wait, wait, but intentional in the sense of picking a topic that doesn't scream Kansas City. 
Right. And one thing to remember about Kansas City is it's in the Bible Belt. It's, you know, it really is um, as um, it, it, it's not L.A. or New York. It's not what what we think of when we're, what television producers who live on the coast. It is a very different location. Yeah. With very different pressures. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for these kids, there was a it was a different environment for them and for their families. So it's uh, it was it was it was intentional in in that way, knowing that if we're going to do this film and we wanted to add when we started out with two and then we were adding more, like we definitely wanted them to be from Kansas City. And one other thing about shooting it over that period of time, and I and I say this on the um, eve of the election, is that we could follow the changes in our cast members and what their feelings were and what their families were feeling between the Obama administration and the Trump administration and how that changed things for them. And, you know, without really commenting because it's a verite film, we watched how that affected them and how that affected the people around them. And, you know, there was also, you know, what protests were happening and that kind of thing. So that that was a sort of um, great side effect of shooting for so long. Yeah, you definitely get a sense of the culture shifting in front of your very eyes through the lens of, of these four very, very special special and brave families. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, when you initially approached them, what did they think they were signing up for? How long of a process did they think they were committing to you? And I, without giving up any of the goods here, one story in particular takes a pretty, uh, pretty severe turn, you know, over the, over the course of it. I mean, did any of them try to back out? Were they all in it from, for the long haul, no matter what? I mean, what's the process like that in, in signing people up? for something that has a, sort of an indefinite ending. Yeah, well, they looked at, um, you know, when, you, when you're trying to gain people's trust, you have them look at um, your, you know, other things that you have shot. And um, so they looked at some of the other shows and films that I had done. And I think that that, you know, helped them see that I do like to, I don't like to do just a snapshot of what's going on in people's lives. And I think that was really important for, uh, for this one in particular. Um, so that, you know, that was really important. They were very, um, they were all pretty gracious right from the beginning, which was amazing. Um, and we had, there were five families at one point, but that one, there was the fifth family actually just did maybe two shoots and um and that was it but everyone um felt like they were you know they were signing up for telling their story over a an extended period of time it wasn't going to be just a few weeks and that it was likely going to be a year and potentially longer and then it and then when we went from two years to this is probably going to be five years they were they were all on board um and it was amazing because um you know we're just really grateful to them because they understood um and maybe not as fully really even how important their stories are because um you know it isn't out there yet and once they see it out there i think it's going to be even more empowering for them i mean we rely on these people to tell their you know show their most vulnerable selves um and so many people can learn from that and i and i think that that's really what these what 
these characters embraced. And I do think that's very different, a different thing for when you, when you, the distinction between reality characters and documentary characters, um, you know, most documentary characters only want to be in it for like some greater good. And some reality may also, but you know, these are not people who are looking to be stars. Right. These are people who, who, as you mentioned, right, the greater good, they want to change society and, you know, be emblematic, right, and, and maybe sacrifice their own personal freedoms for, for the good of, of others. When you're dealing with children, though, it obviously becomes even more complicated. You know, what kind of conversations did you have to have with parents, um, you know, who, of course, had to be all in, but, you know, the kids are obviously only doing it if the parents are guiding them. Was there any kind of nerves on the part of the families? You know, that in some ways, maybe the kids were, you know, they don't get there. In some cases, two of the kids were very young. I mean, what, I'm sorry, I'm not maybe uh, being so eloquent in what my question is here with, you know, my choice of words, but, you know, what were your conversations with these parents, you know, knowing that these kids were going to be giving up or, or really cementing their sort of public definition, maybe for their entire lives. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, first of all, it was, um, in a way, very collaborative storytelling, because if they had something, and there definitely were things that happened that we filmed, that um, that the family, you know, a, a mom or dad, or one of the kids would come back and say, I really, I really don't want that in in my story. Um, and we made sure to honor that. And, um, you know, I think that's really important. Um, and, and honor it in a way that you either don't put it in the film or you talk about what else you can film so that it softens that or it explains that, gives it a context. So it wasn't like they were controlling what we were what we were filming or how the story unfolded, but it was definitely a, a partnership. Like, okay, well, but do you think this part of the story is important? So there, it was definitely an ongoing conversation with the subjects. And, you know, and the parents definitely were protective. And the kids sometimes were, didn't, weren't interested in filming that day. You know, when you show up with a crew and they say, oh, is that today? <laughs> uh, because they're kids. So uh, there were definitely, you know, some challenges, but you, you can't do this kind of documentary without, um, without having a relationship with the people. Right. And a relationship that goes beyond November 12th as well, I'm sure. Right. That's right. I mean, Sasha, you've cast more people, you know, for film and television than probably anyone, uh, you know, out there. What, if you could speak to that relationship once the cameras are off too. I mean, I know, God, again, going back to the real world, you know, you're, I feel like Bina Murray is always going above and beyond to make sure that the cast members are sort of taken care of and can feel nurtured and taken care of, you know, once the story plays out. I mean, did you have to use a lot of that sort of stuff from your, from your playbook to, uh, you know, to apply to this film specifically? especially the children were going to be sort of treated once this film made it to air? Well, I mean, first of all, they're really Sharon's relationships, but that, you know, in terms of how we're, you know, thanks to the way HBO works and the way Buna Murray works and the way Sharon works, you know, everybody in the film has seen the film. They are very happy with the, with how they're portrayed 
Um, they will, they're very cooperative and, and really enthusiastic about the, what, what's going to happen once the film airs. They, get, they, they were so involved in this because they feel so strongly about getting their stories out there. And uh, so I think, you know, sure, it is like casting and it is like other films where, um, and, and, you know, certainly the other documentaries I've done, we're still in touch with the cast members. We've done sequels to Autism the Musical and we're working on something now about, um, they call us monsters. So certainly, you form a relationship with the cast members and you probably know them a whole lot better than they know you because you've seen them in the cutting room. But, you know, there's a great desire to do well by them and to help because I've also worked in story and reality and, you know, you want to, you want to portray people honestly, you really, really do. And you want in the casting department to, make sure that you're portraying them honestly before they are cast. So I think, yeah, it's, it's so important to, to do this with integrity. Well, it just sounds like the way you're describing it, um, and forgive me if I'm naive at all, is it's just a much, as much as I'd love to think that reality shows are partnerships, uh, the partnership on a documentary is just 20 times deeper um, between the participants and, and, the, and the filmmaker. Would you agree with that? I mean, just seems like so many things in reality shows are, you know, whether it's because of the network or whether it's just because of the way the story to, stories have to be told, the relationship's kept a little bit more at arm's length, whereas here it's more of a full embrace. Well, and it's a different, it's a different animal because in, in, in documentaries, you know, nobody's getting paid. You know, it's not a business relationship. It is a very personal relationship. These are people that have agreed to tell their stories. Um, they've trust entrusted the filmmaker to tell them honestly and with integrity and for often a purpose, which is that, you know, they want the world to be better for the next generation of trans kids. And, you know, they're putting their intimate lives on the line to, for that reason. And so it's, it's, not, um, it's, it's not a business relationship. It's something very, very personal. Right, I mean, it's a beautiful sentiment. Um, and it, it's very clear watching this film how true that is. I guess my question though is, there is a business of making films and of making documentaries. So how, you know, how many of these and sharing with the appointment shooting. I mean, how many can you plausibly be working on sort of simultaneously? Uh, you know, how do you, you know, how do you make a career of this when something is, takes five years and, you know, maybe it sells to HBO, maybe it doesn't sell to HBO, maybe you're, you know, fortunate enough to find financial benefactors to keep you going, maybe you aren't. Like, what would your advice be for a young filmmaker who wants to pick up that camera, you know, for the first time and and, and make something really substantive like this? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my advice is to be uh, courageous and bold and just not to give up because uh, it is really easy to want to give up because uh, documentary filmmaking is tough. It's, um, 
yeah, the, the budgets are, the money's not always there. <laughs> um, I do, for me, I do, um, I go out as kind of a hired gun and I work on other shows so that um, really so that I can fund my fund the passion pieces that I want to do. So um, when I can, I, I, I show run executive produce um, other, you know, other people's stuff. And then uh, that money goes right into something that I want to develop. And I usually have things um, in, you know, non COVID days, I have um, lots of things at different, um, at, you know, at different points in time. So I'll have something hopefully about to air and something that is in post and, and then several things that I'm developing and developing, as you know, takes a long time because you may be just starting to meet with the people. You may be working on your contract with them. Um, you may just be starting to film with them. It may fall apart. So, um, so I, you have several projects that I, um, I'm, I'm always looking for stories like we all are, and I'm always reaching out to people and always, uh, talking, you know, to, to new people, to people that I, um, you know, have read about or, you know, seen online or something. How do you sort of ask yourself that hard, that hard question of, is this the one that's going to be worth five years of my time? Right. I mean, do you really look in the mirror every day and, and you know, make those decisions or you just kind of keep going until it doesn't make sense? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes the, I don't always look at things like this is going to be a five year project, except for the, the fir very first thing I did, which was high school confidential. And I knew I was committing to four years. Um, I usually know that I want to go. I want this want something to breathe. And I usually want something that takes up a large canvas, but I don't always know that it's going to be that long. And um, you just kind of go until the money runs out. <laughs> it's really a leap of faith. You know, you, you, you feel it and you feel, you hope that you're right. And you hope, and, and certainly this is the longest running project I've worked on. Um, I've done sequels, but this is the longest amount of time. So you're just, you just really, trust your gut and believe that what you're doing is right. But, you know, if you're just starting out, you probably don't want to start out with a project that's going to take you five years to make. You probably want to find something that is little, has a quick, little bit of a quicker turnaround. And, and, you know, it is a labor of love. Documentaries are a labor of love and they are a real business now and you can make a living doing them, um, which wasn't, which was it, you know, it's, it's always been true for a few people, but it's true for a few more people now, too. But, um, you know, it's it's not the easiest way in the world to make a living. Well, let's talk about the business of this specific film a little bit more. At what point did HBO come into the mix? At what point did you, you know, did you sell it through the festival circuit? Did you, you know, what's, what's the process for, you know, for finding the eventual home here? Well, um, at a certain point after filming for almost four years, we cut a sizzle and we thought, well, let's try, you know, let's try not cutting the whole thing. Let's try just taking the sizzle out. And we got kind of an amazing response from the sizzle. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it really went over well. And, um, we got two offers and um, one was for a series and one was for a one-off documentary. And I think in the end, we felt like even though we had 
a lot of material, as you can imagine, shooting over five years, four years at that point, that it really was meant, we, we always saw this living as a, as a 90 minute documentary. That's what we saw it as. So we went with the um, HBO offer who are you know such amazing partners for documentary filmmakers. They really are. So, and then did they, but, it, but you still had a year of shooting to go. No, so. we were really, we started around that time. We, we, a few months after the offer came in, we opened the cutting room, but we kept shooting while we were editing because when do you stop? How, yeah. How did you make the decision to stop? It almost sounds like writing your PhD. We, we had to deliver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're never really done. You just run out of time. Or money, but you know. But Sasha, you mentioned some of the great documentary films that Buna Murray has made, um, and they all seem, or they don't all, but but many seem very cause based, um, many specific to youth. Um, but there are many docs that are not cause based, and there are many that are about adults. I mean, has is that the specific lane which which was the company you know, decided to travel? When John Murray and I decided to start a documentary division, we decided let's do like let's start doing some social action films because you know if we lose money at least it will be for a good cause and you know thank you john murray because <laughs> who else would say that <laughs> and um and you know so far we've done very well and they they haven't lost money but you know most of them have been these social issue films that we both feel passionately about so yeah, and um, you know, I will add that after um, we did our development deal with um, with Lifetime, we kind of went. There was a little bit of a hiatus because um, Buna Murray wasn't sure what they were going to do with with this project, and I just kept filming. And then, um, you know, I sent an email to John and Sasha after I don't know maybe six months and said, "Can we talk?" And um, and I said, "You know, I want to." I'm going to keep going with this. Uh, what, what do you guys think? And John, you know, was immediately like, I'm in, let's, let's figure out how to do this. And, and that was great. I mean, this has been a passion project for him for the uh, entire time. And he's just been so, 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 so supportive. Um, he's such a great guy. He's so humble. He's done so much for the industry. Um, and he was been great to work on with this project. Yeah, well, I, I echo all that, you know, having once worked for him, you know, uh, early in my career and, and many people I'm sure who listen to this podcast have, have been through, you know, being Murray University, definitely echo all those thoughts. But, you know, it's again, sorry, going back to the five year though, one other thing that I think is really interesting, not just its society change, but probably the number of buyers you could take this to changed, right? The market changed significantly. And so that must've been a nice unintended consequence, right? Because if you went in thinking that this division would be really great for humanity, but might lose money, uh, five years later, it can be great for humanity and maybe not lose you money. So, right. I, I mean, and, and yes, there are more buyers for sure. And there's also way more producers and there's a lot of people that are getting into this business that maybe weren't in it before. Um, you know, now if you go to Sundance, the documentaries are as packed as the features and the business around selling documentaries is as robust as the scripted films, you know, so it, it is a very different world. 
And if you look at the quality of documentaries that are out there now, it is astounding. And the water cooler conversation is often about nonfiction, about documentaries, and that was never true. Um, so there's some brilliant people making documentaries, and there's buyers and viewers for all this brilliant stuff that's coming out. And if you look at, you know, the list of the films that came out this year, it's and, and last year and next year, it's it's thrilling, really. I think people are just really learning how to watch documentaries and are appreciating it. And that's just, you know, great news for us because, um, you know, we, we, we need the people to, we need the eyeballs and the understanding and there's such a great appetite for documentary storytelling now, um, you know, makes our lives a little easier. People aren't afraid to make and show films that are slower. That mm -hmm. well, the, the, the story unravels very, very slowly and not everything has to be, you know, at the speed of light. And I, and I really appreciate that. And it's such a great time to be making films that, you know, where, the, where there's an appetite for all of that. Does it feel to you like uh, this film or and documentary filmmaking in general even belongs in the same category as traditional unscripted television or reality television? Or are they just, are they even cousins? I think they're cousins. Um, I mean, I think there's all different types of, you know, unscripted is a huge category. There's game shows, there's, you know, soft scripted shows, there's competition shows, there's, and then there's shows like the real world. Um, and then there's, on, um, and then there's documentaries. And I mean, there is a very big difference between reality and documentaries. And one of them is that the, that documentaries have a very strong director's vision. And, you know, it's about the vision of a few creative people. Um, and, and I, I, and that's different from reality. Um, and, mm -hmm. and there's, there's no, for the most part, it's not being written. The, the writing happens in the structure. So I, I, I mean, there's exceptions to every rule, but I think they're they're related, but they're really quite different. I think in you know, I I'd say casting is one of the similarities. Who you choose to put in your film and who you choose to put behind a camera, in front of a camera, is is obviously the most important thing. Well, it sounds like it's a good time to be in the documentary business. Good time to be you, Sharon. Good time to be you, Sasha. So, you know, kudos to you both. Well, I mean, I, I just, I was so moved by this. Um, and it is, it's really striking to, you know, imagine first off myself as a parent and, you know, of, of young children and, you know, put myself in the shoes of these very brave parents. Um, but also, yeah, just how far we've come and how far we still have to go in these last five years and, and maybe what these next five years are going to look like. It's, um, it's a lot, it's a lot to process, <laughs> I know, but you know, before we end this, and I know you've touched on certainly a lot of great advice for young filmmakers and for anyone looking to get into this space, but I do always end this with advice to your younger self, um, specifically. And I guess 
Sharon, since you already gave a little bit of advice, I'll let you come up with another answer that may be different than what you said earlier. And I'll, I'll put Sasha on the on the spot first. But Sasha, I mean, you started off making, you know, one of your first projects I saw was a straight up documentary that still plays to this day. Um, you know, you've you obviously pivoted to something quite different in your career to now find you back to this. I mean, what advice would you give to you to 25-year-old Sasha just starting out today? If if you are absolutely passionate about making documentaries and that's what you want to do, get a camera and start making one. Um, and don't be, don't be afraid. Don't be, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not the easiest business, but if you're passionate about it and it's what you want to do, go for it. One, like I say a lot of times, and I'm sure I've said it on this podcast before, it's easier than ever to make stuff. It's just harder than ever to get paid for it. Um, <laughs> but there's no barrier to entry for making anymore, which is really remarkable. That's true. There is no barrier. to When I graduated from college, I won some Sony student award and I won a camera and, you know, some equipment. And I went out and I started filming and my camera was pretty heavy, I have to say. <laughs> heavier than it's much lighter now but you know you can get decent equipment quite cheaply you can start by shooting it on your iphone so you know start start fooling around and and you know practice editing the more also the more skills you have the more employable you are if you know how to edit if you know how to shoot if you know how to record sound the more skills you have like that the better off you are Right. Don't be afraid to, to learn them also because there's, you know, maybe hard to become a professional, but not hard to become an amateur at, at a yeah. lot of points. Um, and what about you, Sharon? And not to lead you too much, but... Um, I do have an idea of advice. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Please, please go on. Um, so, um, and it's not about um, talking to a 25-year-old self, but it is about doing a documentary about a community that you don't necessarily belong to and don't have a lived experience in. Um, for us, um, you know, Sasha and I being cisgender women, um, telling a story about, uh, about transgender families could be a challenge. And it was really important to us to bring on people and organizations, you know, who could help us tell the story in the most appropriate way. Um, and so we have an executive producer, Kimberly Reed, um, an acclaimed uh, award-winning filmmaker who is uh, transgender, and she's been very actively involved in the film. And um, we have lots of other like organizations and other um, crew members, um, you know, in the LGBTQ community, um, so that we would be not doing this in a vacuum. So it was. It's very important to have um, allyship when you're making a documentary um, about, a, about a community that you are not, you know, technically um, part of. So that is my advice. I love that. Very, very key. Thank you. Yes, that's fantastic advice. And one last piece, sorry, now I'm going to ask you a different specific set of advice before we end this, but <laughs> uh, living in Kansas City and now in this pandemic with so many of our peers not living in Los Angeles or New York anymore, do you have any specific piece of advice you would offer up to, you know, anyone who's decided to flee the sort of the major media metropolises and go live where they grew up or go live where they want to be and still have a career in entertainment. It's interesting because I feel like people are living the way I've always lived. <laughs> you know, I've done, I've done pitches on uh, 
Skype before, now they're Zoom. Um, but um, and I've kind of gone in and out of LA and New York when I when I've had to. But um, you can really do this from anywhere. If you have a computer and you have a phone, you can just start developing things. So um, and I also think that probably during these times it may be even more important to try to look in your immediate area if you you know, especially if you don't live in, in New York or LA and just look in your, in that area for, for stories, because they are, they are all around us and, um, and, and you can find them. Well, it's a remarkable story about an incredible, you know, group of, of four families. It's so wonderful. You brought it to the screen for all to share again, uh, November 12th, HBO and then forever. Hope a lot of people watch it. I hope a lot of people learn from it. And I can't wait to see what's next. And I'm just so honored that you would join me today. Thank you so much. All right, be well. So there you have it. The full story of transhood. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thank you as well to my guests, Sasha Alpert and Sharon Lease, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, Please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind. <laughs>